G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition, our last show of 2019, a new decade about to roll in as I say a very big welcome to my co-host Mark Fine. How are you Finey? I'm well, you're right, it's an end of an era, the teens I guess we call them. Yes. Uh... Almost done and dusted. I'm not one for reviewing 10 years, best of this. Well, well should we have done our um, our footyology podcasts of the decade? No. Even though it consisted of, what, three and a half years for us. Yeah, but I just find, yeah, look, it's a fair discussion to have, but it's had everywhere. And really, it's when an article is written or a story told about the best 10 or the best of the decade, it's just one person's opinion, isn't it? Yeah, look, actually, last week I did touch on retrospectives. I must fess up that having bagged them, I've spent about the last three days bit by bit going through BuzzFeed's, I think, 150 media moments of the decade. And all I can say is, geez, 2010 seems like a long time ago in many respects. Yeah, if you take apart, if you dissect... The decade in headlines, then it's been a long decade. Well, it certainly has. I mean, that was uh, that was how many? That was um, five prime ministers ago. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> in this country, it's been instability. Instability is our new stability. What about uh, actually decade in football? And I did I did say this. There was um, the AFL uh, media crew have done some pretty good compilations of highlights so the other night I had a look at the best finals of the decade and if you were summing up the decade you know we talked about like who was the team of the 90s and some people said north some people said west coast Hawthorne has to be the team of the teens don't yeah, they yeah they, they set three flags three flags the sto- grand finals the big story of the teens was the introduction of two new clubs and really took until last year's grand final, for one of them to be where they were engineered both to have been already. Yes, and the other one's still at the bottom of the heap. I don't think they've been embraced by the football world particularly. GWS has certainly been given a greater opportunity, I think, than Gold Coast through their uh, draft picks and through their the concessions made them. That being said, I don't think there's a fondness for either team beyond... Their, their own supporters, which is unusual for startups or for sort of smaller clubs. They generally fall as some fan second or third favourite team, but there's no love for these teams because I, I think because they're viewed as AFL constructs and... More non-traditional devil football. Spawn. Non-traditional football areas doesn't help. Just quickly, who, who'd be the runner-up in the team of the teens? The second... It'd have to be Sydney, wouldn't it? Well, for consistency, yes. One flag, three grand finals. I'm not No, I'd have Richmond as runner-up. 
Oh, yeah, no, fair enough. Powerhouse yeah, ending. Yeah, two flags, yeah, came Power, with a rush at the end. Powerhouse ending. And they did play. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yep. So Richmond second, Sydney third. Yep. Geelong fourth. Yep. Hung about yep. without doing a lot. West Coast fifth. Uh, well, West Coast, how many flags? Oh, one flag, two grand finals. Yep. Yep. No, probably about Caesars. I'll tell you what, finally, 2010 seems a long time ago, but I reckon if you were to, uh, as someone, I saw recently someone unwrapped or had kept um, a Macca's burger that was like 20 years old and the, the, it hadn't sort of perished. But um, I, I reckon you could stumble on an Andrews hamburger from 2010. You and couldn't. It, no way. It'd be eaten 5,000 times over. Well, if you did, it would still be edible because that's how fresh the ingredients are. No, that's, that, how, that's, how, that's how long they stay that's fresh. That's actually op- the opposite. <laughs> what do you mean? It's the exact opposite. Oh, okay, so it no preservatives. Decay, correct. It would decay naturally. Well, I was just trying to tailor the... Well, that was, sort the, of, that was the disturbing thing about the super-sized movie... That um, oh, I remember that. Yeah, uh, what was his name? Mortlock or Sherlock or something? <laughs> something Lock. Yeah, yeah uh, did and there was an extras because I got the DVD, so not everybody saw this. There was an extras to it where he took all these McDonald's products and put them under domed glasses for and filmed them one year, three years, five years, something like that. And it's funny the burgers sort of all decayed and. It, all into a lump. They look quite weird. It was like almost um, somebody pouring liquid over sugar. It looked yucky. But but the most disturbing were the French fries. And why? As you bought them. Yeah. As well, in, after five years, they were identical. Yeah. Well, they go pretty rock hard after about five minutes. Yeah, and tasteless. Quite right. No, no, it's not. No, I, I had a good serve of chips from our local fish and chippery the other night and uh, with the requisite chicken salt over them. Oh, I hate chicken salt. Eh, I don't mind it. I don't yeah, mind that, it. To me, that's unnatural. Yeah, no, it's a very Adelaide thing, as we've discussed previously. Anyway, Andrew's Hamburgers. It's the way they make chicken salt that I don't like. Okay, let's talk about Andrew's Hamburgers. Do, they are at do you know how they make chicken salt? Oh, from chickens? From chicken perspiration. Oh, really? They they get chickens nervous. They sweat yeah. and then they de no, anyhow, all made up. So one forty four Bridport Street, Albert Park. Why is it good? After eighty years, do you reckon you'd still be there if you didn't get it spot on? Really, eighty years of making burgers. Well, banks have been around eighty years, and everyone hates banks. Uh, don't know state savings banker. A lot of those banks aren't around anymore. SSB, the uh, Wales. Mm. Um, permanent building society in Geelong. No pyramid. Sorry. Pyramid, yeah. Anyway, we 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 digress. Burgers are uh, pop down there and see burgers, uh, bur- see the Greeks. Yeah, bur- burgers are only as good. You're only as good as your last burger. Yeah, and that's what's great about Andrews that every last burger is as good as their best burger. Absolutely very consistent. Very consistent. Oh, I'm telling you right now, I'm hankering. For a real burger, I'd love one right now. A breakfast burger? No, just a burger. I, I, what? Put a put an egg in it, make it a breakfast burger. Mm. No, I don't need it. I I need what what I would have at midday. I'd have right now. Do you need a new house by any chance? Funny you should mention that, but yes. Okay, so where will you go? Well, I'd certainly go straight to Nick's Bartels and Hardwick Buildco, and I'd find out exactly what I could afford. I'll have the block of land. 
and they'll do the rest. You know why? Again, same as Andrew's Burgers. Longevity and trust. Okay. And an egg for a breakfast house. Yes, okay. As you can sense, there's a bit of an end-of-year uh, feel about this show already, so we're not going to mess around anymore. Fair bit to get through still. Um, plenty of uh, footy news around too, perhaps surprisingly for the end of December. Let's get cracking. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, well, uh, one of the biggest football news stories of the year has uh, happened very close to Christmas, long after the season, of course, and uh, even after clubs broke up for their um, their Christmas spell finding. And I speak, of course, of the um, shock retirement of champion Richmond defender Alex Rance. And um, some people said, oh, it wasn't that big a shock. Well, it was that big a shock. You're talking about a guy who um, had done most of the rehab after doing an ACL. So, uh, you know, if it was a decision that was coming... He managed to cloak it uh, perhaps surprisingly. How did you react when you heard the news? Less surprised because, as you may remember, early this year I was moonlighting on another podcast, the Pizza Pie Night, which was Gab Rossi and George Caponaris. George went away to Greece for a few weeks and Dom Harper and I was asked to fill the breach. And on one of those programs it was revealed by Dom that Alex Rance would not play next year. And we poo-pooed him. He said he's not going to play. Now, he had some intel from within the family. And having read Alex Rance afterwards in his interview with Matthew Richardson, I get a sense of where Dom was coming from because Dom had had a relationship, had known somebody uh, from within, uh, fairly close to the family and the, and the uh, church. And to those people, there was a commitment to be more committed in the coming months and years. Okay, so obvious question here. Why did he do all the rehab? Well, what, how better to recover from... Knee injuries are debilitating for people in life. Yeah, but, I mean, you don't have to get yourself up to AFL standard. And I saw a pic of him, and Dylan Grimes talked about it. He said he he looked even bigger than he was before okay. he got injured. Okay, I think for... And this goes back to his first retirement announcement... I think he's had to balance up and had some conflict with commitments made very publicly through AFL football, and that is, you know, being part of a club and contracts, etc., and also commitments to family and and his own faith through the Jehovah's Witness Church. Mm. And you can try and keep both balls in the air for a while. Five years ago, he did, and. He made a decision that fell on the side of the football club. And I think he kept, probably kept options somewhat open this time as well. But his family and faith pulled him far more strongly. Maybe the fact that he'd once, not let them down, but once gone close to making that decision, he was not going to once again uh, be very... And I'm sure people close to him knew that there was a decision being made. It was unlikely then it was going to fall to football again. You, um, we've talked a bit about Conrad Marshall's excellent books on the Tigers and the yep. the, the chronicle of this year, uh, Stronger and Bolder. And Conrad interviewed, I think, four or five players at length for the book. One of them was Rance. And I remember when I was reading it, this is long before his announcement, um, 
he was you know, very sort of candid in an interview and, and it, it sort of stayed with me. And when I heard the announcement, I sort of, that was the first thing I thought of. And there was a quote from him. Um, and I think it was in grand final week even. And Comrade asked him how he was going and he said, oh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm really tired. Really looking forward to getting away. And he talked about the drain of um, uh, having to stay up for all the other players, even though he wasn't part of it. And uh, he, he, there was a, a particular quote about um, uh, having to manufacture enthusiasm. Mm. And that that really struck me. I thought, gee, you know, like if – and no slight on him at all, but, I mean, if you are having to manufacture it, that would probably make you yourself sort of question – your own commitment deep down. So that sort of stayed with me. Um, and remember, look, for a lot of footballers, life after football is stepping into the great unknown, professionally, personally, etc. Whereas his future is quite defined. Yeah. And that doesn't mean he won't be involved in football because he still has to... Well, he's a, got those academies. He has to have a professional life. Mm. But he was always going to be defined post-football by his beliefs and his uh, close family ties. Well, let's talk about the legacy because um, it spawned an interesting discussion, which you know I sort of became part of on Twitter, of course, where else? But where does he stand in the pantheon of all-time great defenders? Now, I, I do think there's a bit of a tendency these days to perhaps overstate the um, standing of current players or more recent players at the expense of older ones and um, not have enough context. But for me, there, there are clearly, and speaking purely in the modern era, so AFL era, 1990 onwards, there are three obvious standout key defenders. And they are Alex Rance, Matthew Scarlett and Stephen Silvani, going back a bit further. Now, people were having discussions about where he ranked. In fact, one debate on my Twitter feed is still going. It's been going on for a week. But I looked up the records of the three of them, and they're, they're <clears throat> remarkably similar in terms of uh, honours. So Rance has ended up with 200 games, five All-Australian caps, uh, All-Australian captain one year, one best and fairest, um, average 16.6 disposals, uh, great interceptor, rebounder, spoiler. Matthew Scarlett, 284 games, six All-Australians, one best and fairest, similarly. Disposal average just on 15, so very, very similar. Stephen Silvani, um, 312 games, so the most of the trio. Five All-Australians, so they're all either five or six. Two best and fairest, AFL Team of the Century nomination, of course, back in 1996. Disposal average about 13, slightly lower, but in an era where uh, defenders tended to, or key defenders particularly, tended to rebound a lot less. I was quite struck by that. I thought his disposal average might be less. If I was asked to rank those three after after much consideration, I would go one Silvani, two Scarlett, and three Rance. Um, Scarlett second because... I think he he was a better rebounder than Rance and almost a pioneer of key position defenders even becoming sources of attack. Um, but Soss, I mean, this is where Soss uh, really stands up. More games, um, as many gongs, good 
numbers for a key defender, or yes, he played a bit of footy up forward, but it's the quality of opponent he played on in the end, isn't it? Lockett, Ablett, Dunstall, uh, Carey, Sumich, Modra. You know, that's that's a roll call of, you know, half a dozen of, of the best dozen key forwards the game's ever seen. So uh, I give it to Sauce. Right off the top of your head, probably unfair because I'm giving you time to think about it, but how would you rank them? Well, they're just different footballers. Uh, to me, Alex Rance, there was a point in 2016 where I made the... Oh, 2015, where I made the observation... Richmond got the best defender and the worst backline in the competition <laughs> at the same time. I know Dustin Martin is credited with being the pee in the pod, the, the sort of footballer that takes Richmond over the top and makes them premiership winners. But I really believe Alex Rance saved that club. And not only did he manufacture and engineer a, a working backline, but a brilliant backline that he seemed to general and great vision. So he doesn't have the players to play on. I also said, you know, oh, Alex Rance is retiring. All the top, all the grateful forwards in the AFL can sleep easy tonight. Oh, oh that's right, there aren't any. So well, one a, of them plays for his own club. I'm saying one of the few. You can maybe put Rewalt and Josh Kennedy in a different class, possibly Ben Brown, but there's not a lot of full forwards. Actually, there? two of them play for his own club now with Winch there as well. Yeah. So. It's hard to line them up. To me, the best defender is Matthew Scarlett. To me, the best springboard is Rance. And actually, to me, the most talented of the three is Silvani, as as proven by the times he went forward. Mm. Okay, so how would you rank them? I I would rank them, as I said, in that order probably. Rance one, Scarlett two, Silvani three. So we're, we're... The other way around on, on but, those two. But I, I, I'm loath to put those three in a group on their own because I, I have clear memories and can clearly add to that group Southby, Kelvin Moore and David Dench. Mm. And I do so, and I'm comfortable to do that. Yeah. And oh, no, I was talking about modern era, so yeah, 1990 to me, that's onwards. that's my modern era. I don't know. I, I don't delineate that. Yeah. Oh, AFL, started the AFL okay, was so 1990. There's a, a, a point in time. Is Darren Glass statistically not a very good fullback? Uh, I think he is. I haven't looked up his stats. He's very good for a, sh- a far shorter period, though. Yeah. Oh, I, it would be probably um, smart assery to try and include him in that three. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, I think he had a pretty good record. Anyway, I mean, look, above and beyond all this, he, you know, he, he, he's clearly been one of the greats. Of the modern era, if not all time. Um, it's a pleasure to watch him in action. And he, but not it, his whole career. He started off very fumbly. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and true. Kick. Remember true. he couldn't kick? There was a year he just handballed all the time. Yeah. And then he took advantage, or he felt he was taking advantage of the head is sacrosanct hysteria, and he became a very dangerous footballer to himself. And then finally it all fell into place. When I think things changed for him when he got more confidence in kicking. Mm. And then he became a beautiful footballer. And uh, a, a nice bloke too, very affable and uh, intelligent uh, bloke too, with obviously a very well-rounded life. So uh, well played, Alex Rance. Um, congrats from all of us here at Footyology and uh, well done on a great career. The other story of last week uh, was about Wednesday last week, so obviously not on last week's podcast, but pretty important, I think, um, was... 
the AFL announcing some rule changes, um, several to the function of the um, match review officer and the tribunal, um, procedural type of things, but they seem to make sense. The one which garnered the most headlines and attention for obvious reasons was the change to the rules surrounding extra time. Now, this is pretty interesting. Obviously, for those that don't remember, we had our last grand final draw in 2010. It was 2015 the AFL announced that uh, were we to have scores tied at the end of a grand final, there it would now be decided on the day with two five-minute halves of extra time and a golden point scenario in which the siren wouldn't sound at the end of the second half. Play would continue until a score was registered and then the siren would sound and the team that scored would won. That has now been changed before it's even been used and uh, the solution now is two three-minute halves with time on but if scores are level at the end of a second period of time on, the siren is blown and we go again for two more three-minute halves. Now I have to say I'm um, a much bigger fan of that concept than the golden point for a couple of reasons. I think the Golden point scenario is pretty anticlimactic. Um, I think there's a danger that players wouldn't have known they were in the golden point period without any um, siren sound warning them. Um, and I, th- I, I also think, and well, no, I don't think I know this, uh, having spoken to someone at the AFL, one of the reasons for the change was they were pretty spooked by the farcical end to the uh, Cricket World Cup well, final. Well, that's a fact. That, that is why that was... And well, well done to them. I think that's well done. That they saw what was a very poorly received, for good reason, uh, public response to how the World Cup ended on boundaries. It was mm. ridiculous that after a month of cricket, there wasn't time for one more over each. Yep. And... Well done for them to, before the start of the next season, redraft the rules governing extra time. It may affect none of them or us in our lifetime because as a high-scoring sport, draws are rare. Extra time being played would normally divide the teams. Yeah. But philosophically, get it put in place something that feels to be fair. Mm. Now, we don't have a lot of wind at football anymore. But there are potentially a scoring end. There could be a scoring end. And that would make it grossly unfair that after five minutes each way, the team going to the scoring end keeps going to that end. Very good point. And that's why it read as unfair. I personally would have left it at five minutes extra time each. I think that's... Yeah, three is very short, but yeah. clearly that's allowing for the possibility three, of a second. Which is so unlikely. Yeah, that it is. You just have to live with it. I would have gone five, five, three, three. Yeah, um, and the, the, I wonder if people have overlooked that too. That these rules now apply for any final, not just the grand final. So yeah, we've right. now had we've had four extra times in finals, haven't we? Hawthorne North in '94, West Coast Collingwood, 2007. Oh, no, we've had three, three yeah. um, Port and West Coast yeah, in right. 2017. Three. So, yeah, look, it's obviously pretty rare, but um, it, it would happen in the scenario of a lesser final as well. So just to make it clear, 3-3-3-3, three, 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 three. I would have gone 5-5-3-3, five, five, three, three, and if it was still... Oh, right, OK. If it was still scores one, one. level... No, no, then, then, I'd go, then I'd go on boundaries. <laughs> well, what's the footy equivalent of boundaries? Uh, goals from outside 50? Imagine if they decided it on goals 
which sometimes I look at a score, you know, and often drawn games are not identical scores. They're, they're oh, don't stop. I'm an Essendon supporter, mate. Where Essendon is the only team to lose a grand final having kicked more goals. 1968 against Carlton. Okay. But didn't you benefit from... Oh, no, you were wayward, but you won the replay in 48. No, we lost the replay oh, in 48. you were wayward. Having kicked 727 well, in the tie game. Fault, and it? that was a year after Fred Stafford of Carlton kicked a goal in the last 40 seconds and we lost yeah. by a point. I'm glad I wasn't around those two years. I would have topped myself. Um, all right, so that was the other big story of the week. And actually, and another... Injury story, but a pretty serious one. David Mundy at Fremantle breaking his leg. Freak accident. Cycling play with his one of his children. What's cycling play? Maybe teaching them how to ride. Oh, okay. And got struck by Shouldn't the pedal. teaching him how to win a contested ball or something? Oh, Go think, on. I think they're genetically predisposed to that, but you've <laughs> got to learn how to ride a bicycle. Yeah. And that's quite horrific, learning to ride a bicycle. I remember that... First moments of free, free riding. <laughs> Gee, it's good when the wheels click. click the training wheels come, come off. off. Yeah. So apparently, one of the pedals struck him just above the ankle. Must have been pretty hard. It can be how the angle of strike as well. Yeah. yeah. Brittle. And he didn't know it was broken. No, because he went to train, had some soreness, and they took precautionary X-rays and told him you've got a broken fibula. So I must admit I didn't see the sort of uh, anticipated recuperation time. What's the damage with that? They're not sure. Ah. I mean, because it was that unusual break and, as you said, you wouldn't have expected bones to break. They're treating it more like somebody falling over in a retirement home. Well, it's good to see we've got a, an addition to the uh, pantheon of unusual football injuries, yeah, which we had right. a competition about this yeah. year, didn't we? Brad Ottens will be... Um, please for a bit of come. Brad's the only person who features in that pantheon twice, I think. Yeah, what did he do again? He had the fell out of a, you know, trying to put up a hammock or something and <laughs> speared his foot. Yeah, spe- oh, there was a spearing. And then he um, injured his hand on the propeller of a, a, a boat when he was water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> who was the person that sprained their ankle in a hole in the backyard? Peter Everett. Oh, Peter Everett, right, yeah, okay. <laughs> fell in his own... Pretty big fell hole. Fell in his own <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you believe all of them? Uh, yeah, some of them have been... Well, a bit of... There's a, who was the dog one? That was Jordan Dugowie, was it? Yeah, yeah. The dog ate but my home. There were a couple of them. dogs in consecutive yeah, years. Yeah, Collingwood's had a few dogs. Jeremy Howe dog, <laughs> dogged it. <laughs> but, but wouldn't it be great at the start of next season or pre-season as we head into next season, one of the players goes, oh, what, look... Goes to the club and goes, look, I've got an injured shoulder. I got into a bit of a blue at the local nightclub. And they go, come on, what's the real story? <laughs> he goes, yeah, I was playing with my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, final one, bit of uh, contractual news. Speaking uh, of dogs. Uh, go on, you you break the news. Well, it's not breaking the news. No, you... no, Bailey Smith recommits. To... Bailey Smith, East Malvern's finest mullet. I wonder, he could easily turn up next year without it. You know, that's this does happen. Do I tell you about that? I did a post-game interview with him on 3AW last season and it emerged that he actually lives five doors down from my mum. <laughs> so my, my mum keeps waving hello to Bailey Smith every time he's she's... good footballer though, isn't he? Oh, he's very good. Uh, I wonder if he's keeping the locks. I, I must say I quite grew to like them. He ended up looking increasingly like the... the uh, Joe Dirt. No, I was thinking the... Uh, have you seen Stranger Things? No. No, because it's on Netflix and you wouldn't watch stuff on Netflix, would My you? My wife does. I don't get to. Um, Actually, I'm watching a show on 
No, I think it's A B. How to be a god in South Florida? Or no, I haven't seen that. South, it's great. I've just, started, I've just started watching the new Rick and Morty series, which is There's all a new on one. Netflix. There is. <gasps> yes. Don't tell me anything. It's out. It's yeah, taken, yeah. It's yeah. taken two years. I, wa- I watched the first one uh, last night. So is there only one up at the moment? Uh, no, it's five. Netflix, you get them all at once, mate. That's one of the great things about Rick and Morty's great. <laughs> How's this? I'm explaining how Netflix works. <laughs> how could... I mean, people might No, it's pretty funny. In, it's your sort of humour, funny. It's, it's pretty great. out there. It's Oh, pickle Rick. In fact, yeah. In fact, the more I think about it, you remind me of Rick. Nah, bro. <laughs> sort of unhinged genius. Well, one of my sons, Lucas, does a great Morty. Like, oh, really? Yeah, that sort of. And by the way, that whiny sort of perpetually anxious yeah, thing. That anxious, the anxious yeah. anxiety. But but congratulations to Lucas and to the other hamburger people, not Andrews, but McDonald's. Well, you know, he's gone for a job at Mecca's and got it. So. Oh, well done. Yeah. Well, which, uh, so which, are you going to tell us which no, stories? I won't, no, no, <laughs> yeah. I won't tell you, but as as I said to him, when you go in there first day, don't, don't you know, don't cause any ripples. Don't, don't make any problems for them. They've been around for a long time. And he goes, yeah, it'll be fine. No, no, I won't do anything wrong. And then he leans over to his brother and he goes, I've always wanted to put KFC into a McDonald's order. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Good start. Um, Now, you had a final non-football news item. This is unbelievable. So, darts, there's no reason physically why men and women, or women can't compete on equal footing with men in darts, other than numbers. Because, you know, historically, places where darts are played have not been very welcoming or, or... warm, inviting places for women to be. You know, dark corners in pubs, men's clubs in England. and So they've, the Women's World Tour has always been a secondary matter with prize money, not even in the 10% of, I'm talking 1% of the big guys. But in recent years, they've tried to integrate the sport and they've allowed a couple of women, the top two women in the world, to play in the World Championship of Darts. It's been going on for a few years. None of them have ever won. In fact, winning one leg, which is just you know one game of 5-0-1, has met with huge crowd cheers, approbation. You've got to win three sets to get through. You know, I'm talking. We're talking three. Anyhow, so it's best of five it, games. It, it varies. Isn't it? it starts off round one, best of three sets. Yeah. A set is three legs. Yeah, so you've got to win three and that's years. you've got to get to five hundred one points backwards. Yeah, you start at five hundred one. You've got to finish on a double. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Now there was it made news worldwide. Yeah, Fallon Sherrick. Yeah, twenty five, twenty six year old girl. Fallon Sherrick. Interesting she, name. Where's she from? I think she's a Brummie. I think from around Birmingham. Okay, and she's had her travails. She's a young mother who had a serious kidney condition develop through pre- after pregnancy that she still battles. Um, slight thing. Her became the first ever female to win at the World Championship of Darts. May I say, only a day or so after the world number one, a Japanese competitor, went within an ace of beating a pretty good player in Richardson. Now, the player that Sherrick beat, and it made news in America, it really was sort of that story that caught the imagination worldwide. Ted Everts, look, he's... Was he the geeky-looking guy yes, with the glasses? Yeah, yeah, correct. He's, he looked like that would have really hurt him too. Look, he's 20 years old. He's done very well as a 20-year-old to make it onto the 
men's professional tour, but he's ranked 80 in the world. And if you had a look at their averages and their history, it was not an impossibility. What was an impossibility? That in round two, she played the number 11 ranked player in the world, a Premier League darts regular, which means the top eight players play in there, called Mensa Sulevich from Austria. He has won black-type events or Grand Slams-style events before. He has played against the very best in the world and beaten them. And he was at the World Cup of World Championship of Darts for the 10th or 11th time. He is a seriously powerful player. And she beat him three sets to one. And she beat him legit. She had moments of brilliance. Her finishing was outstanding. And Mensa didn't play brilliantly, but he did power score against her, which normally would take away the the edge off a lesser player. She had finishes, which means three darts to go over 100 two or three times. But maybe the most sensational was the way she won this event, because even though 3-1 sounds comfortable, it was 2-1, and she was... Basically, had she lost the leg that she won... Sulevich would have had the throw in the next leg, favoured to win that, won the set, and would have gone into the last set red-hot favourite. And to win, she needed to get a score of 86. She threw 18-18, leaving 50. So you've got to finish Which is on, the bullseye. The bullseye. You've yeah. got to finish on a double, but the bull is considered a double. Ah, okay. But the bullseye is a much smaller target than any other target on the board. Is it? Much smaller. What about the um, the triples and the doubles? I'm saying the triples and the doubles are first of all you've got you need a double to finish, right? Yeah. So any other double is much more real estate than the bullseye, but triples are more real estate. Yeah. So you don't aim to finish on fifty, but sometimes your scoring means you have to try. Yeah. To finish on fifty is great. To win a set on fifty is great, but to be a girl, to beat Mensa Sulovich by throwing a bull well, people were just falling off chairs. Well, that is, um, if you if you've heard all that, uh, yes, Mark Fine is a darts aficionado. So, um, and I was thinking, what other sports do men and I think men Olympics, and women compete on an equal footing? Yeah, I think at Olympics only equestrian. Um, well, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I mean, is there any reason women uh, couldn't compete with men at lawn bowls? Well, that is, they do compete together in mixed. Oh, do, do they? Well, yeah. they, they play with and against each other yeah, in mixed. Okay. Absolutely. Lawn bowls is not a strength sport. Yeah. It's touch. Yeah. They definitely could compete. Uh, archery? I think there is an element of... Strength. Yeah, hand strength and, and you know... in. I believe I've checked them up. Yeah. You know that in ultra marathon running, yeah. there is a distance where men and women become equal. What is it? Oh, it's a it's ridiculous. Well, it's in my case it's when you I put my shoes on. Yeah. But at, at, obviously men are faster over 100 meters. Mm. But there does come a point in time because women's physiology is lighter where that becomes an advantage for ultra-marathon running, distance running, and in the hundreds of kilometres, so very rarely ever competed with, the physiology says that they can be equal. What is an ultra What distance is an ultra-marathon? Well, remember, they used to run from Sydney to Melbourne. Well, Cliff so, Young did. Oh, I didn't. Kouros, you know, the Greek guy. Oh, Giannis Kouros? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, they, they ran that until they worked out there was a train that went from... <laughs> 
What about what, what about what about uh, with um, the old days in the Melbourne Cup? They rode Archer down from where did Archer they come w- from? From Sydney. Yeah, yeah. They walked him down. <laughs> they reckon that's a bit over overstated. Oh, come on! Don't destroy the urban myth. Um, all right, there's enough for uh, newsfeed packed with uh, information and the odd aside. Speaking of which, um, probably uh, aside's best suited to this segment, Life Hacks. Let's get into it. Life Hacks, building a better world. All right, as I say every week, uh, this segment could go anywhere, so uh, let's open it up and see where it takes us. Finding your first life hack. Okay, so during the week I was making soup broth and I required muslin. Do you know what muslin is? Um, no. Okay, it's a, it's a fine type of material that you can strain soup. Oh, a cloth. Yeah, cloth. Yeah, okay. Is that what you put the... Um uh, for, you know, the pudding or the... Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Okay, you can put yeah. your plum pudding there. Yep. You can put your bouquet garni in there. Or you can, um, if you want a nice clear broth, you can strain your soup through it. Okay. So I have to go... What's wrong with the old colander? Because it lets too much through. Okay. You can imagine the fine weave of the muslin is yeah, yeah. effective. All right. You're not, you know... I'm not, not much of a cook for Not me. much of a broth maker. I'm not. Which sort of leads me onto my observation because a brothel you would never be an owner of. Now, a brothel. Well, isn't that where you get broth from? So, <laughs> all right. So I've got to get muslin cloth, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, there's a food supply. I'm probably better to look for a haberdasher or a, or a like a fabric store. Yeah. Okay. So I get in the car, and I drive, and I drive, and I drive, and I drive, and I drive a long way till I get to Spotlight. And I think that's a long way to drive to get bloody muslin cloth. But something dawned on me as I was driving. So on the way back, I decided to count it. And I'm not kidding. There were 18 Oriental or Thai massage places between my place and my muslin cloth. <laughs> would you, why would you be looking out for them? I wasn't looking out, but they're just everywhere. And I thought on the way back, I'll count them because it's ridiculous that you can't get muslin cloth, but you can get a good happy ending 18 times before you can get muslin cloth. <laughs> Is that really true? 18. 18. Well, I drove down Turak Road, and I kid you not, between Turak Road and Turak and Punt and Turak and Chapel, mm. there are five. But hang on, let's, in all fairness to the owners of these establishments, we probably shouldn't be suggesting they're all illegitimate massage places, should we? It's all legitimate. Is it? <laughs> you don't have to have the happy ending. Can you have it as a beginning? Oh, if you're in a hurry? Let's not go there. No, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I, I know, well, uh, I know um, some people that do massage and they get very pissed off that these sort of shonky... Happy ending they, type places but, tarnish their reputation. All right, well, there's no way that a stretch of road that is 400 metres long need five legitimate massage places. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. It's certainly healthy competition. Yeah, well, what's going you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, this area is just the world's epicentre of sore shoulders and lower back pain. <laughs> rubbish. You do see a lot of those stories, you know, like local papers, you sort of see it quickly scan the front page or whatever, they do seem to run an inordinate amount of illegal brothel closed down type stories, don't they? Or, well, 
I'm just observing that there's a heck of a lot of them. You know what? It's funny. You know what I thought you were going to say? Because it was the first thing that occurred to me, actually, was uh, whatever has happened to haberdasherers. Yeah. So what has happened to them? Doesn't people they still? Use, out, they got bought out by time massage. <laughs> people, people still use have a need for cloth and yeah. linen, and so well, there's, do they get them all spotlight. from Spotlight now? I guess it, and it's like hardware stores and Bunnings. Yeah, yeah. the bigger department stores yeah. probably Kmart. I don't know. I green green grocers and the supermarkets. Oh, oh no, there's still, so. still some yeah. green grocers, but I don't buy a lot of. I don't buy a lot of cloth. Well, I certainly don't. <laughs> You're talking to someone here. I've been known to. Uh, You're not a man of the cloth, are you? Well, I, I'm one of those people, pathetically, who sometimes, if he's run out of a certain sort of apparel, would rather go and buy some more rather than actually even do the washing. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the only thing I've ever bought previously at Spotlight what is footy jumper numbers for my kids. Oh, really? Is that where you get them? Yeah, actually, it's a good point. Yeah, I probably last. Bought one of them in 1980 or something. I was looking for a red 32 to put on my black duffel coat. <laughs> All right, no, that was a good one. Okay, my first one. Now, apologies in advance. I am getting a bit serious today because uh, there's a couple of stories that have resonated with me throughout the week and resonated with a lot of Australia. And obviously, the uh, and we're not making light of this. The bushfire crisis has been. Uh, it's been absolutely hideous and some of the video stuff coming out of the bushfires is like among the most confronting footage i've seen and uh, when you look at maps and incidentally if you are interested in this stuff i found a great news report uh from a bbc current affairs show which i tweeted last night and um i can't remember the name of the show but when i was overseas i was watching a fair bit of it late at night on tv in the various hotels we were staying and um, it's really good. They they just have a really good, quite fast paced but still comprehensive um, uh, takes on on the big issues going on in the world. And they did a, a it was about a eight minute long story on um, the Australian bushfire crisis and the whole climate change argument, if you like. And I uh, thought covered it really well. I did tweet that out if you want to have a look at it. But two things with this. Um, in fact, I might I might. Oh no! I'll, I'll do the first one first. So the the obvious big story has been Scott Morrison's uh, holiday to Hawaii and his absence um, whilst this crisis has been going on and the ruckus that has ensued as a result. Now, um, I've certainly been anyone who follows me on Twitter would be aware of this. I've certainly been on the side that he he shouldn't have gone. Um, I think one of the tenets of leadership is you're able to tap into the public mood or zeitgeist or whatever you like to call it. And there's a clear, very deep anxiety in this country about what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I think a sign of a sort of switched on leader would be someone who recognised that. And it's not saying don't have a holiday. Incidentally, he has had, I think, three this year already. But it's timing it properly. But more important to me with this story was the fact that his department, and maybe it's not even his fault, clearly his advisors didn't want him to go. Once he did decide to go, they lied about it. Um, so they, the media directly asked the Prime Minister's office 
was he on holiday? And they ummed and art about it. Generally, when the Prime Minister goes on leave, there's a public announcement and that the Deputy Prime Minister is standing in as Prime Minister, which is very bad news in Australia at the moment because uh, that Michael McCormack, uh, not overly impressive, I, I don't think. And uh, there was no announcement in this case. They just bestowed that... Um, upon him, so when when people were looking for a comment on the bushfires, all of a sudden, oh, Michael McCormack's the acting Prime Minister. Where is the Prime Minister? So there was that where is Scott Morrison thing going on for a while, and then they lied about where he'd gone because people had heard it was Hawaii, and um, who was it? Samantha Maiden, who works for the uh, New Daily now, she was directly lied to by the Prime Minister's office about it, and it's in, a, in its own right, just gives the impression of shiftiness, devious behaviour. So there's that element to it. But I think the thing about, you know, leadership can be a very intangible thing. And I think the the better leaders this country has had, and I'm not just talking about people of my political persuasion, I would say that John Howard had a very good talent for tapping in to the public mood of the time. And I would suggest that if the current crisis was happening, he would never have considered going on leave. It's not just not going on leave. And, and people say, what can he do? He can't hold the hose. Well, ScoMo said that himself. It's not about holding a hose. It's about placating people's fears. It's about offering, It's about sort of taking charge, giving direction, updating people. Oh, in times of crisis, war, your, your leader is your... almost becomes the head of the family to which you require some sort of um, confirmation or, or you you go there for safety. You you, yeah. you look to them for direction. And I think historically, you know, people talk about Sir Robert Menzies. Well, that was the case with him in World War II. Uh, sorry, John Curtin in, in World War Two. Menzies subsequently. I mean, yeah, it's it's being able to, I guess, be a, a comforting um, face for the people. And it's also, in a more practical sense, people saying, well, what could he do? Well, there's clearly an issue with uh, firefighting resources and funding. The fireys keep talking about it, how they're having to buy their own equipment and stuff. Well, that could have been solved with the the click of the fingers, pretty much, and it wasn't. Um, this dithering about state and federal responsibilities, etc., uh, etc. Et so there's various ways it could have been done. In the end, Morrison himself basically conceded that it was an error of judgment. But even when he came back yesterday and did that press conference, there wasn't a real... You know, it was sort of like that, if anyone was offended, I apologise sort of thing. It was one of those things. He just, yeah. He was on a fact-finding mission in the deep end of a swimming pool at a Hawaiian resort. Well, that was the other thing. He he said from Hawaii, like he rang 2GB, where he knew he was going to get a favourable hearing, and said, oh, yeah, look, um, you know, I don't know if he said, I'm sorry, he said, but we're coming back. And he didn't come back for another 24 hours. So by the time he came back, it was like half a day earlier than he was supposed to be coming back. Anyway, look, had it's... to wait till his pics got developed at the local 24-hour photo place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, look, it's been, you know, certainly the anger on social media has been palpable. It'll be interesting to see whether, A, there's that same sense of anger throughout the broader community because uh, clearly there's, there is a, a divide between the social media world and the larger Australia. There's no doubt about that. Um, the second thing will be to see whether this the souring of his reputation sticks 
or whether come the next election, which obviously is at least two years away, um, people have forgotten. And I tend to think it'll be the latter. Um, but anyway, it's been a, a big story and uh, political missteps. You know, they they can the consequences can be fairly catastrophic on several levels. All right, you're next. A most curious thing happened to me yesterday. To what was fa- that? To my family, and I guess my my response tested my self belief that I don't have a racist bone in my body. Oh, and no, yeah, I sort of tested it. Don't, the boundaries were pushed. So I'm at home Sunday morning. We've actually got people coming around on Sunday afternoon, family, so all in a bit of a dither. And the doorbell rings, which means I have to go to the front gate, which is a fair way from the sort of the house. But I walk down to the front gate, and there's a, a guy there. And there's a lot of joggers around our area because it's a touristy area and a jogging area, sort of. I won't say exactly where it is. And... He was clearly a jogger. He was in the jogging gear with his drink bottle. And he said, look, I just thought I'd tell you. Um, and he pointed over to a group of people sitting at a bus stop. And, but to one gentleman in particular, he said, um, that bloke just started a fire in your rubbish bin. What? <laughs> and he goes, lucky I was sort of here because I, I put it out with my, I had a full water bottle and I opened up the bin and sort of, you know, sprayed the contents of, let Onto the what would have been in the end quite an inferno. So we're talking about one of the recycling bin. One, the okay, so the bigger uh, black wheelie bins. Yeah, yeah, with the blue lid. Well, yeah, but, but however the lidding yeah. works. I like the blue lid. And I thanked him, offered to refill his water bottle. No problems, no problems. And I went over to have a word with this guy. Now he was one of four Chinese tourists, and they just were saying to me, "I'm not going to." Do you know they were Chinese? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they were Chinese. I heard them speaking. I, I can recognise Mandarin. Right. And they just kept saying to me, no English, no English. And I sort of... In English? That's all they said, no English. Oh, okay. Um, and I was trying to talk to them, even sort of to show what, you know, the action of smoking a cigarette. And he sort of waved me off and looked away. And then the bus came, but it wasn't a public transport bus. It was a sort of mini bus, and I realised it was a tour bus. Oh, yeah. So before they, they were about to get on, I stood in front of them, and I said to the bus driver, who was Chinese, I said, uh, you speak English, don't you? He goes, yes, yes, yes. I said, look, can you tell this gentleman who was smoking at my rubbish bin and then put a lit cigarette in the bin that started a fire, that this is very dangerous, and... He's not to do that anywhere else. It's very dangerous what he did. Conversation began between two of them in Mandarin. And he said, no, 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 no. This man denies it. He said, the man who came to you was the man who lit the fire. And oh, so that guy had been for a run while he was having a dart. Guy, the, the guy was wearing a singlet. And shot. It's just not, <laughs> so I had this sort of difficult situation where... I really want to turn around and say to the guy, that's just not true. This guy's a liar and I'm, you're not getting on the, you know, I really, part of me wanted to not let him get on the bus. He started a fire in my place, but I didn't. And I sort of went back in and told the story and I've told it to a couple of people and I've got to be honest, I've had to check myself and I really have told it as I've told it to you now and I've had to check myself and 
save a couple of adjectives and expletives because it's not because he was Chinese, it's just because he did the wrong thing. And I know culturally Chinese still smoke a lot in a lot of places. And hopefully, culturally, they do butt their cigarettes out before they throw them into bins. But it's not because he was Chinese, it's because he did the wrong thing. But I've had to remind myself a couple of times. So how did it end? I just threw my hands up and I, I, what am I going to do? Tell him, tell the bus, I said, I said to the bus driver, that's just rubbish. And just walked away in disgust and had a good laugh with that guy who had sort of made his way over to hear what was the outcome. <laughs> but very good, nice of the guy to put it out and to ring the doorbell. You know, if he wasn't there, that thing would have gone up. Because I could see, when you looked inside there, the papers and that clearly were, yeah. were charred and had water. You know, they'd clearly been the stuff. Now, that thing just would have gone up in fire. Oh, paper just... It's funny you mention that because I don't know why it came up, but I was watching something It was with, pretty windy yesterday as well. You know, not a good situation. I was watching something with my son, David, the other night, and I reminded him... I asked him if he'd heard of the Bradford City Fire oh, disaster. You didn't. You can watch it on YouTube. It's, it's horrific. I to did. Watch. I'd, I'd seen it before, but oh. a long time ago. And yeah, it's, it's horrible. But the speed with which that thing went up, and um, for people that don't know the detail about that, there was a whole lot of accumulation of rubbish and paper and stuff underneath Correct. the grandstand. Someone uh, dropped a lit cigarette. Believed and to be somebody an Australia, an Austra- a former English person who'd emigrated to Australia. Believed to be somebody from Queensland, and that person certainly went to their grave fearing that they had done it. Really, hundred percent. Yeah, okay. And uh, 50, 50 something people died in it. Yeah, the footage is absolutely horrendous. Anyway, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, better you than me in that sort of uh, culturally delicate situation. Okay, I've got another delicate matter too, although I'm not feeling delicate about it anymore. Don't roll your eyes. Uh, I just want to talk briefly about climate change because this is a subject, I'll be honest here, I haven't been nearly as engaged in this stuff as have the rest of my family and indeed a lot of other people. And I'm hoping, like a lot of other people, recent events have made me go, well, hang on, this, you know, it's, it's time I did switch on. So I've been, I'd say over the last month or so, I've been reading and listening to a lot more. Well, one th- one thing um, I was aware of even prior to this, though, was the extent to which the evidence about uh, man-made um, global warming, uh, it, the effect of it is increasing uh, exponentially. It, the evidence keeps stacking up, and the denials, those people who say that this isn't an issue and there's some kind of conspiracy going on or it's crap, as Tony Abbott labelled it, are looking, in my view, sillier and sillier. And every day now, practically, you can read somewhere evidence of what is going on. For example, last week, uh, scientists who study climate in the Northern Hemisphere, they've been looking at Greenland. And Greenland has it's been... brown land? Well, it, it, it's, I mean, it's not a laughing matter. It's been Greenland has been shedding ice at a rate seven times faster than it was just 20 years ago. Like, in the context of climate, that is an incredibly brief period. Um, you now have... Gary Linnell, my former age colleague, wrote a really good column on this in the New Daily. The consensus now that global warming is being hastened by human lifestyle and industry practices, 
The scientific consensus is now 97%. Now that, surely, why I kept scratching my head about is, if that is the case, why would anyone without that sort of background, without that sort of level of research, doubt what these people are saying? Now when I say 97% consensus, uh, just in November, there was a, um, a declaration that the world is facing climate crisis signed by more than 11,000 scientists from over 150 countries. Now, people are arguing that there's some sort of big conspiracy going on. 11,000 scientists in on the conspiracy from 150 countries around the world? I mean, it simply, it simply isn't true. And Gary posed this question, and I think it's a good one. Why are people who are such sceptics about global warming, the same people, they're not sceptical that the earth is round and not flat. <laughs> we don't uh, question um, the origins of, of humanity much anymore, evolution. Well, there's a lot the, of people question well, well, okay, yeah, I pro- perhaps shouldn't have brought that one up. Um, anti-vaxxers are held down with rightful indignation because science has proved but these, these things are indisputable. Now, why has climate change become such a, an ideological issue? And that's something we've got to work out. I think personally, a couple of reasons. One, because adapting to it means a lot of discomfort for us down the track that a lot of people probably aren't even aware of um, in terms of our eating habits, our lifestyle habits. Uh, and... Look, I mean, you, know, you may laugh, but uh, our Christmas dinner on Wednesday or our Christmas lunch, um, the rest of my family has decided we're, we're not having red meat. We're having uh, seafood and chicken because... Um, you, want the ta- you want that slaughter? No, no <laughs> just the... the um, well, there's a, there's a big discussion about... Uh, Methane gas. Well, that's, that's part of it, and the money that it takes to sustain cattle to to slaughter for our, our eating benefit, blah, blah, blah. But I think the other thing is is the sort of cheap um, politicisation of the issue has meant that people who, you know, that, that an adherence to the belief there is man-made global warming is seen as being left and opposition is seen as being right and it has fallen along those sort of party lines. And I think there are a considerable number of people in the media particularly who can't afford either from a philosophical or a uh, an opportunistic career point of view to let go of that opposition even in the face of overwhelming evidence otherwise and I'm afraid that reticence is holding us back from doing stuff and this is a case of most obviously damagingly in terms of government so Scott Morrison came back yesterday he is now conceding that man contributes to the rate of global warming, and yet he said quite flatly, I won't be changing our policies on it. Now, that is that is a complete contradiction. And unless people start facing up to the fact that this stuff is real, there is no more debate, it's real, we have to act swiftly, we're headed for a very dark place in for generations long after we've departed this earth, finally. Well, as I said a couple of weeks ago, my... Lack of, not interest, but lack of passion relating to climate change and non-involvement in the discussion is seen by many 
people who want to have that discussion as tantamount to heresy. Even worse than having the wrong opinion is having no opinion. But interestingly, and I'm the sort of person that unless something directly affects me or it's put thrust directly in front of me, I am fairly blind to it. I am an obtuse type when it comes maybe to some bigger issues. But you know what? Last week's weather, I've been around long enough. I've lived in Melbourne all my life. Last week's weather, and it's the second or third time it's happened in the last year, is so different to any weather pattern I've ever experienced. So it's not that it got to 44 degrees or 43 degrees, because I've been here in hot days. But to get to 43 degrees previously, you needed a run-up. There was a 37, 38, 39, 40, 40, and it would break with the cool change, normally accompanied by thunderstorms, always accompanied by that dramatic change of northerly to southwesterly, grey clouds, and almost a washing away of the old weather and in with the new. Now we've got this new thing where it's 35 degrees one day, 23, 43, 20 and 18, but all through, not a cloud in the sky. I don't understand. That is completely different to any weather pattern I've ever experienced in Melbourne. Well, no doubt. So I am now willing to state, you know, plant my flag. Climate change is absolutely real. I was part of a school of, not thought, I just sort of felt, oh, maybe the times of the year are different. Sort of like, have you ever um, edited or cropped a photo on your phone mm. and you can rotate it? Mm. I felt that that's what was happening. Just the calendar and the thing was rotating a bit. No, this is a completely... This can only be described by two words, climate change, end story. Well, Australia, looking at a global map, Australia has been the hottest place in the world for the last couple of weeks. Also, just quickly, I don't want to go on and on about it. 18 of the 19 hottest places on Thursday were in Australia. But the hottest was not in Australia. No, I I saw that. Uh, And it was 49 or something, or 48. Um, but, you know, I've been, this has been played out on my Twitter feed. And Imagine what it would have been the globe temperature on a tennis court in Botswana. <laughs> um, the wet globe. Or yeah, the wet right. globe, a wet bulb. I reckon both your globes would be wet. <laughs> this has been played out on my Twitter feed, and the same people keep coming up with the same discredited arguments. Well, I mean, I've, got one, I've got a couple this morning. Last time I looked at my feed, someone saying, well, how come the highest recorded temperature we've ever had is back in 1939? Because climate isn't about one-offs, it's about a pattern of weather over an extended period. Um, what's the second one? People say, oh, well, it's not caused by climate change. People aren't saying the fires have been caused by climate change. Climate change has exacerbated the conditions in which fires can start and continue to burn, right? So that that's a complete straw man argument. The other one is, well, blame the Greens, they prevent backburning. Well, you know, look... Some people in my family vote Greens. I'm not particularly wedded to them ideologically, but they don't prevent backburning. If you and if you want to see it, it's on my Twitter feed. People have retweeted their policy on fire hazard reduction and burn offs and backburning, etc., etc. They don't discourage it. So that's another myth, and these myths keep getting perpetuated. And I must say, I am getting tired of trying to sort of. But re- remaining civil whilst saying, well, no, A, B and C. Um, but that's clearly what's going to have to happen to bring people around to this way of thinking. 
All right, you're up. Last one from you. The cotton bud. <laughs> what Is about there a it? Stranger consumable and mass produced item on the planet than the cotton bud. Uh, Here's why I say What's it. unusual about it? Okay. Use it to clean your ears. All right. Let's just say we played Family Feud. Yeah. Your four most popular responses, what do people most often use a cotton bud for? Cleaning their ears. Okay. So any orologist, any medical professional, any GP will tell you do not use cotton buds to clean your ears. It's clearly not – you're not supposed to do it. Why is that? All it does is force wax down. It's not – you're not supposed to use a cotton bud. So what are you supposed to do, first oh, off? Well, you can get, you're supposed to get your ears cleaned. You know, if, if, there, if there's blockage, it needs to be done professionally by, you know, eye, ear and throat specialist or okay. an neurologist. But you're not supposed to use cotton buds to clean your ears. So no packet of cotton buds says, you know, Swispers, whatever the different brands are, Johnson & Johnson, perfect for cleaning ears. None of them state for ear cleaning, yet none of them say do not use to clean ears. So here is a product that is mass producing billions that the manufacturers know is predominantly being abused and misused, but they keep manufacturing it and selling it with by turning a blind eye or a waxed ear to the problem. Sounds like cigarettes. Well, cigarettes come with all the warnings. Yeah, they and, do now. Yeah. You know, but this is a, a, it's this, we know what you use it for. Well, what now? How? In fairness, I use it to clean things. Yeah, well, I, I'm not a big cotton bud user. I but like using it to clean tricky parts of around the stove and this and that. They get in. Yeah, I, I I see lots of used cotton buds around our bathroom sink. So someone in our house is using it's them disgusting. for something. No, but I, I don't think they've been shoving their ears. I think they're things like you know makeup yeah, yeah. applicators or. Uh, that but finger is, is only pointing in one direction, clearly, given there's only one female living in our house. But, but uh, or, or these are different times, modern families. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, no, true. So all I am saying is, and I make it very clear, this is a, a black trade, this is a quasi-illegal trade in forbidden medical, you, you know. It's interesting. I just uh, find, yeah, no, it's a good point. I find it an interesting product. It's a good point. All right, uh, last one from me. I'm going to make it fairly quick. You talked about darts. I want to talk about Tetris. I love Tetris. Uh, careful. What? Me and my wife OD'd on Tetris on our honeymoon to the point where I was driving my car and the whole road looked to me like Tetris blocks. <laughs> okay. Move across, up, in. All right. I love it. Um, <clears throat> I've been playing it on and off for probably 20-odd years, and I, I make sure I get the, the old version I'm familiar with, with the big blocks. Um, but I love it. I, I just find if I'm sort of sitting there writing something and I get stuck or whatever, I, I will you know, click on the tab that has the Tetris stuff there and play a quick game. I think it's, it's a great sort of clear-thinking exercise. Um, now, uh, I just bring it up because... You know, th there is a movement to mindfulness. So when people get stressed and overloaded... Yeah. So there are adult colouring in books. Yeah, yeah. And Tetris is in that family of just that nice sort of relaxing... Your mind's working, but you're not... It's not... Painful. Has that been psychologically proven? Absolutely. Okay. No, well, I, I was just... That was 
me just assuming that it's it's good. Well, you were spot on. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the other night I was sitting. It was Saturday night. I was sitting there watching uh, the Big Bash. And boy, a lot of Big Bash games on. I'm, I'm trying to. I am watching most of them. And you've got to hand it to the Big Bash. They've been able to make 2020 cricket boring. <laughs> well, it's too much of it. But it's boring. The, you know, the run chase and all the time. Yeah. It's always the same. Well, 160 and... Yeah. Oh, Chris, last night, except last night, Chris Lynn, pretty yeah, amazing. 94 off 30-odd. And they got over 200. But, but you're right. they're very, so formulaic. They can be same-ish. And may, maybe that's why this happened. I was sort of simultaneously on Twitter, and I saw a tweet from none other than David King, our football media colleague, saying, I can't make up my mind. He said they're both gripping... He'd gone off for cricket and he was choosing between, I think it was World Spelling Bee or something, and World Tetris Championship. So I tw- quickly tweeted, I said, where's the Tetris thing? I love that game. And he said, oh, 505 or 507 or what was one of the latter sports channels. So I flicked it over. I think it was ESPN. And it was a World Tetris Championship. And it was the grand final between a guy called Joseph and a guy uh, from the US and a guy from Japan, I think, called Kirion. And I'll tell you what, I, I was just awestruck. Now, they're playing a, a different version of it with smaller blocks, which freaked me out a bit. But the speed at which these guys were going, they were getting up to level 21, level 22. The blocks were just dropping at a rate of knots, and they were just calmly packing them down one side or leaving gaps here and there. And I was I was just spent at least, oh, you know, it was only like the last fifteen minutes. But I was sort of sitting there, just totally in awe of these two guys, watching them. And uh, in the end, uh, it was uh, was it Joseph that won? Yes, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, but it was it was gripping, and I tweeted Kingy back. I said, "Oh, thanks for putting me onto this. This is fantastic." Um, anyway, it was just yeah. I'm, I'm not big on video games or whatever. I'm, I'm from the uh, sort of Pac Man. Uh, Space Invaders School of Video Games, yeah. but uh, I, I love Tetris, and uh, I, I did go through a stage where I was writing down my highest scores, and I, I can't remember the highest level I've ever got. I think I got up to 20 once. Um, I'll have to dig it out, but uh, I'm not as good these days. It's a sign of old age, but uh, great game, and uh, they brought on the inventor of Tetris too. I can't remember. I think he's a Russian guy or European guy. That's great. The inventor of Tetris. Yeah, yeah. He came on, and and everyone stood up and gave him a, a standing uh, round he of applause. He was known the king of. And he and he had a jacket on with Tetris pieces on it. It was like, <laughs> I want the jacket. It was great. Anyway, it was a good little diversion from yet another game of T Twenty. All right, there's enough life hacks for this week. That was an interesting spread of topics, wasn't it? Um, and an interesting spread of uh, opinions on various forms of media coming up, finally, as uh, we get set to go to a year past in the world of movies, music, and TV. Let's do it. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, my turn to pick the year this week, Finey. And uh, last week, of course, we had a look at 1980. And we've been sort of spreading the decades a bit. But I've stuck with the same decade. However, the opposite end of that decade, I've decided to go with 1989. Why? 
Uh, no particular reason. I just thought close to the nineties still still feels contemporary to me. Nineteen eighty nine, but no, a very a very interesting year for uh, all of these three areas. So let's start with music. What is your pick of 1989's music? Well, as you know, I pride myself in a broad church of music taste. And you I'm do. sure that you will not be venturing anywhere near my choice, but it was one of the early albums by Garth Brooks, self-titled, is it called Eponymous? Well, you're quite right. I, I, there wouldn't be a genre of music I know less about than country. Okay, well, Garth Brooks is, you know Garth I know, Brooks. I've heard of Garth Brooks, the man, yeah. in the, the man in the cowboy hat because yeah. he's bald. He's a beautiful singer. I love the way he sings, and a lot of his songs would be familiar to listeners, even by osmosis. I might have heard them in the background. Is it fair to say he's sort of responsible for the commercialisation on a on a on a sort of? Oh no, no, it goes back before him. I mean, there were. No, well, I didn't explain that right. I mean, that's sort of almost crossover between country music and yeah, I think cross- pop music. Okay, yeah. crossover is a good term. Yes, he's was at the. Forefront of that, 1989 being pretty early for that type of uh, popular country appeal. Yeah. This album's not maybe his most famous. I think In Pieces would be the more famous, most famous one. But it's got one of my favourite songs on it. And if you want true country schmaltz, that's what it is. But for some reason, this song gets to me. And I actually heard it a few months ago. And one of the very rare times in my life, rang up my wife at work and told her I loved her. Did you tell her you were doing that because you heard that yeah, song? Yeah. And what was her response? Oh, that's nice. Cause we, <laughs> <laughs> we went to, when he came to Australia. That's to a Melbourne, nice dear. We went and saw him. The song is If Tomorrow Never Comes. Oh, okay. With the very simple notion that if tomorrow never comes, will she know how much you loved her? Will she know in every way that you've loved her Every day, it's about a guy who's about to go to bed and worried that he's going to die before he wakes up. Well, that's good. I'm glad that rather than a guy who's on death row in in jail. You know, like every song written of the 1970s was about someone in jail. Yeah. This is a basic, and it's a whether it's your kids or your wife, but somebody you love. If if something happened to you today, have you told them recently how much you love them? Well, that well, that makes me. Th- was it Van Morrison? Have I told you lately that yeah. I love you? Yeah, yeah no, you're right. Yeah, and you're quite right yeah. too. And uh, having lost people close to me, yeah, it is one of the things you think. You know what? Uh, yeah, did you tell them everything you need to yeah, tell did them? You, you know, did you tell them every day in every way? So is it a ballady sort of? Only one. Is yeah. it a ballady yeah. sort of? Yeah. It, I've, I've got to be honest here. When, when people say country music, the first noise that comes into my head is. Slide guitar. Yeah, no, no, it's, no, it's not that. Okay, it's, okay. it's slow ballady stuff. All right. Okay. So there you go. Garth, and by the, Garth Brooks. And the song is. Well, the album's Garth Brooks. Yep. By Garth Brooks. Self-titled. And the song is "If Tomorrow Never Comes." If tomorrow never comes. And check, I just, check it out if that piques your interest. And I'm thinking of that, Rowan. If tomorrow never comes, don't tell me you love me. Not love, but I've I have great respect for you, yes. and I enjoy your company greatly in working with you. Ditto, Mark. Ditto. You you you, you are slightly hard to get on the phone, but I. Uh... Oh, that's part of my rant at the end. <laughs> okay. It's in my New Year's resolutions. <clears throat> oh, yeah, right. Um, all right, music. Now, I had a I had a a lot of my favourite sport out albums in 1989 but again that's not why I chose this I wasn't thinking about this when I chose the year but here's a sample of things that all albums I really enjoyed in 89 Faith No More The Real Thing 
uh, Nirvana, Bleach, their first album. Soundgarden, Louder Than Love, the album that got me onto Soundgarden. Our very own Midnight Oil, Blue Sky Mining, massive album. Uh, one of my favourites by the Hoodoo Gurus, Magnum Come Louder, terrific album. Another favourite local act of mine, a uh, really good album too, I think very underestimated. Boom Crash Opera, These Here Are Crazy Times. I wonder if this, people. I wonder if people after my Steely Dan effort last week, whether people are getting a bit of thinking. Maybe I have a broader scope of musical interest than they previously were aware. I'm hoping I can strengthen that perception this week because I've decided, despite all those bands that I I really like a lot, I don't. There's not a heap of English music that I love. I admit I, I tend more towards American. And Australian stuff, no particular Which is unusual, reason. unusual. Your your sensibilities to me would be more towards English music, but I, I understand that the American music you like is that alternative, yeah, hard. It's a bit heavier. I think yeah. American rock tends, as a rule, to be a bit heavier than the English brand. Yep. I mean, not not across the board, but I don't just like heavy music, and this album is a good example. Um, one band I always had liked. And this album absolutely crystallised that for me is XTC. Now, uh, if you don't know XTC, I, I, London to a brick, you have heard at least one of their songs. I was talking about Generals and Majors came out in 1980. Great little pop song still. Senses Working Overtime, um, massive song. Uh, what else did they do? Dear God, uh, Ball and Chain, um, another single of theirs. I'm, I'm sure there's a one I've forgotten. But this album um, came out in 1989. It is called Oranges and Lemons. And I can honestly say it's one of my favourite ten albums ever. And it's a, it's a real sort of psychedelic, sprawling sort of effort that encompasses a range of different styles. In fact, you know who it reminds me most of? We, of course you don't know. It's one of those yes. stupid questions I'm now going to answer. Um, the Beatles. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the Beatles, but I remember hearing this album think it, it is very Beatles-y. There's a, a lot of different sort of sounds in it, and it's it's lush, and the um, the lyrics are uh, funny and interesting. Well, that's high praise indeed. Um, XTC, the lineup of XTC, all very accomplished musicians. Andy Partridge, main singer-songwriter, Colin Moulding, and uh, Dave Gregory, a trio. And... Um, how would I describe this album? Yeah, look, it, it it's poppy. It it sort of glistens. It's shiny. It like a lot of that music in the late '80s, but it's not overproduced. It's still, you know, there's not those horrible f- sort of flat sounding drums. It it's it's um it's bright and poppy. Yeah, good. Uh, there's elements of rock about it. There's there's jazz in it. There's sort of Middle Eastern sounds. The themes of the songs, there's a lot of stuff about parenthood. Andy Partridge was a new father at this stage, so there's a lot of stuff about, you know, the innocence of kids and, and relating to kids and child-parent relationships. Um, the biggest songs of it, if you're trying to think, what would I have heard of this? There were two standout tracks of, of, of this, both singles. One was The Mayor of Simpleton, and to me, The Mayor of Simpleton is almost the perfect pop song. And the other one was King for a Day, and ditto for that. And um, I don't know how big they were here, but they certainly got played on the radio enough. And I'm pretty sure in England they were, they were fairly big hits. It's it's a fantastic album, and it's one of those albums which 
it it's, it doesn't tell a story, but it's got a real lovely flow to it. I think it's 16 tracks. It's quite long. It's about an hour. But I used to put that on whilst I was doing stuff and just get lost in, in the sweeping sounds of it. So if you've liked what you've heard of XTC, I, I thoroughly recommend this album. Great cover too. Very Beatlesy sort of looking cover. Psychedelic, bright colours. Oranges and Lemons by XTC is my music choice. Okay, movies. Okay, 1989, uh, an interesting selection. A lot of sophomoric movies in 1989, National Lampoon's Christmas Okay, vacation. so explain what you mean by sophomoric. Uh, sophomoric, the sophomore is your first year at college in yep. the United States, sort of appealing to um, teenage type, but that's a base humour. Yeah. But nothing wrong with that. I enjoyed a lot of those movies, don't well, get me wrong. Well, I'll be going there shortly, yeah. Um, then... I guess there was a movie that, if it didn't thrust Daniel Day-Lewis into international stardom and respect, it went pretty close, I would have thought, was the um, magnificent My Left Foot. Did you see that? Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, powerful movie. I also, I'm not good. Who, who's your favourite left foot kick of all time? <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me think about it. Keep going. <laughs> because that's what you say. Was that the movie about? So yeah, yeah, so? yeah. Um, but for mine, it was, again, an art house movie, but this powerful movie, very artistic in its filming, by Peter Greenway called The Cook, The Thief. Oh, yeah. His Wife and Her Lover. Yeah. Uh, with Michael Gambon in it. And a cast that included Ian Dury had a small role in it. But... This is what about a, his rhythm stick? Well, no, but he did get a fork thrust in his cheek <laughs> that was lodged there permanently. The main character in it is this owner of a restaurant, this this rollicking... His name is Spicker, and he owns a restaurant, and his wife is his object, and he is a vile, ferociously vicious man. He's He's, he's frightening, is the only way to describe him. And at one point in the movie, he gets a sense that his wife is cheating on him and he storms through his restaurant, which is filmed very staccato-like. Different parts of the restaurant are in different shades of light right? into the kitchen, which is this furnace. It's like Dante's Inferno. But he storms through the restaurant going, I'll find him. And when I find him, I'll kill him. When I find him, I'll kill him and I'll eat him. <laughs> And he's, uh, I won't do a, I won't spoil the movie because it's well worth seeing. It is disturbing. Okay. I always get it mixed up. So it's the, the cook, the, the thief, thief, his wife his, and her lover. Right. Okay. Four, four bits to remember there. Um, yeah. Okay. I should check it out. It's one of those, I think it's the first movie in this thing that one of us hasn't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Well, here's the second, apparently. Yes, well, I'm surprised you haven't seen this. And, and you did talk about silly movies. I must say, my taste in movies... Yeah, no, I like serious movies, but I do I do like my comedies as well. It was a good year for movies. I'm going to rattle off a few that came out in this year. Big, big box office hits. Uh, Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams. Oh, that's my daughter's favourite movie. Uh, yeah, I like it. Uh, when Harry Met Sally. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, the famed orgasm from Meg Ryan, but it's a good I mean, movie. When you go to that restaurant in New York, which yeah. is Katz's Deli, there's an arrow and a sign above the table oh, really? that says this is the table. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's the bloke? Billy Crystal, Billy isn't Crystal. it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll have what she's having. This was, a, I remember thinking, I haven't seen it since, but I remember when I watched it, thinking it was pretty good. Sex, Lies and Videotape. Yeah, yeah. Uh, James Spader, I think, is yep. in that. Um, My Left Foot, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy. I saw the adult version of that, Drilling Miss Daisy. Oh, don't. Driving Miss Daisy is a uh, is, that, uh, is a Morgan Freeman yeah. and Jessica Tandy. Yeah. It's funny. I remember I liked it, but the scene I remember is when the um, the, uh, the the housekeeper dies in her sleep, and she's Paulie Culkin's in it, isn't he? Or I can't remember. But you remember the the housekeeper dies, and she's holding a bowl of peas, and they bounce all over yeah. the floor, and I it's in slow motion. I don't know why I remember that. Have you not seen the adult versions? No. It's for a certain predilection of which I'm not keen on. Clearly, and we've ventured far too much into that turf already. Uh, crimes and misdemeanours. Yes, that, um, that is the best description of it. Field uh, Field of Dreams. I, I love Field of Dreams. Kevin say Costner. That, say it ain't so. Uh, no, that's eight minutes. Say it ain't so is about the Black Sox. Field of Dreams is, no, Kevin. Um, yeah, but he builds a... F- but that's the team. That oh, because it's, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. I thought you were talking about eight men out. Yeah, but I'm saying that's the you know this is the fictionalised, yep. crazy version of that. But I always that final scene. Spoiler alert! But the final scene where he's playing catch with his dad yeah. uh, always. Heart, oh, but it just made me ball every you know, time I watch it. Great about it! Ball. I've been to um, Pennsylvania through Amish country. Oh yeah. And they love their baseball, the Amish, and they carved these beautiful, beautiful baseball fields in private homes in cornfields. Really? And it's very, it reminds me of that. Uh, Born on the 4th of July, Tom Cruise. The only Tom Cruise movie I give a thumbs up to. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, underrated movie, Glory, about the um, Didn't see Matthew Broderick, about the first uh, black soldiers to to fight mm, uh, really in the Civil War. Yeah. yeah, really good movie. So was Matthew Broderick play the main part? Is it Matthew Broderick? Or am I getting mixed up? Pre- I think it is Matthew Broderick. Um, or he's, he's like the leader. Um, Major League, uh, about the women's um, baseball. But I've gone with something far less serious, more frivolous, and uh, I would argue more fun than all those, and it is. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <laughs> starring Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Now, uh, I reckon most people would have seen this. If you haven't seen I it, have not. well, it's it's a stupid premise. It's silly. It's you know you could almost argue it was a teen movie, but I, I think it's better than that. I, I think uh, it's great fun. I think there's some really funny jokes in it, and basically the premise is as follows: Finey, uh, that Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter are a couple of American high school slackers who uh, can't concentrate on their studies because they're too busy pursuing their would-be leading rock band, the Wild Stallions. Uh, And, of course, it gets to the stage where they need uh, to get an A-plus on their history exam, otherwise they're going to fail the year. And uh, one of them, is his dad's going to send him off to military school. So they need to get cracking, and uh, the assignment they are set and need to uh, p- pass with flying colours or flying carpets, if you're Ricky from Trailer Park Boys, is how three historical figures would see their town of San Dimas in uh, California. 
Uh, so they're agonising about how they're going to do this, uh, where suddenly a vision from their future emerges. And uh, we, we cut to the view on... Um, what planet is it? Well, it's 700 years in the future, and uh, the universe is utopia thanks to the magnificent music of the Wild Stallions. I think the year's 2000. It's 2688, I think. But uh, Rufus, the excellent Rufus from the future, comes back with Bill and Ted from the future to convince them that they need to pass this essay and to help them out. They are packed off into the future in a phone box of all things. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on too long here, but they basically round up a series of historical figures, including Napoleon, Billy the Kid, uh, Sigmund Freud, Beethoven, uh, Socrates, who the throughout the entire film they call Socrates because they don't know how to pronounce his name, <laughs> um, Joan of Arc, Genghis Khan, and Abraham Lincoln. They are all rounded up and brought in this phone box back to the present day where they get to have a look at San Dimas and, of course, they end up being part of the history presentation which they pass with flying colours. It, it's a heap of fun. It, I'm trying to think of a... I mean, last week I talked about flying high. It's not that level of humour, but there's just... Yeah, it's good fun. There's some funny moments in it. Um, they went on and made a couple of sequels. It did, it did pretty well, but uh, I always get a good laugh out of it. Um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. All right, we're going to have to hurry this one along a bit. but and That's t- going to be difficult because TV was a star <clears throat> in 89. Well, there were two. Okay, I'm going to mention a couple of other shows which started in 1989. Baywatch, which, like it or not, you know, earned sort of a place in uh, popular culture history. Uh, Doogie Howser, which I must say, I, I used to quite enjoy Doogie Howser with uh, Neil Patrick Harris playing the medical prodigy who was performing open heart surgery and stuff at the age of 12 or 13 or whatever he was. But there are two massive, massive TV shows which began in 1989, Finey, and uh, I'll leave it to you to talk about the first of them. Well, started in 1989, ended in 1998. It has certainly had an impact on it's in the West, in the West, in places that we live, the United States, England, etc., etc. It's had a, a, a marked effect on language, on even humour, because it was the embodiment of observational humorist Jerry Seinfeld's take on things. It's called the show about nothing, but it's actually the show cram-packed, filled with everything. And for the one person on the planet who doesn't know what we're talking about, the show is called Seinfeld. So Jerry Seinfeld plays himself. He's longtime friend in real life and fellow comedy writer and neurotic troublemaker, Larry David, who later has his own great show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. New season starting in January. Steps away from this and creates the character George Costanza, who is Larry David. Uh, Kramer, in fact, was a person who lived in the same uh, apartment complex as Jerry for a time. And he was a quirky type that they basically blew up into this much-loved character, Cosmo Kramer. And unlike the pilot, in which there was no love or interest or former interest of Elaine, having watched the pilot, which had the only female character was the waitress, a recurring waitress at their favourite coffee shop, um, they decided it needed more of a female 
flavour to it, touch to it. So Elaine became a character, though not based on anybody in real life. Okay, just stop there for two seconds. Do you like Elaine's character? Yep. Oh, well, that all works so well together. Okay, have you seen Veep? Well, I've, I've not caught it because I've avoided it till I have time to watch it as as you suggested in block form. Everyone listening, you must watch Veep. Funniest show ever. So it becomes a, a slow burn in terms of ratings, in terms of placement in the US. The first season has some admirers, but is not creating any great ripples. And they're not sure whether it's going to be taken up for the next season. But by the end of the first season, it starts to get great momentum and a cult following. So they really back it as a Thursday night special in the US. That's an important time slot. And by the end of the second season, the you know it's, it's crack cocaine for TV viewers. <laughs> I think, look, there's a great website called Vulture that ranks the episodes from worst to best, 169 of them. Yeah, it's a huge run. It's fun, but the number one ranked episode, and I tend to agree with it, is Could the I contest. Be... Oh, so, yeah, I've seen it, yeah, yeah. Master of his domain. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, well, the other ones that immediately come to mind are the Soup Nazi. Yep, great episode. Um, what's the other one? The one where they're, um, they drop the pears in the, in the they're watching an operation. And That's they... not pears. Pears was when they made... They were laughing when Jerry's girlfriend was in a play. The oh, can- what are they dropping? The candy the- that they dropped was a junior mint. Oh, sorry, I'm getting my songs mixed that up. That was hilarious because George had purchased a painting off the person who was being operated on, and was fairly dependent on him not pulling through to increase the value <laughs> of the painting. And apparently, the operation was not going well till the sterilising effects of the mint. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, uh, <coughs> now, look, I, I I really like Seinfeld. I don't. I can't even explain why I haven't watched more of it. I've watched a bit of it, um, but I, I should because it's it's on regularly, and I'm sure if I binged it, I'd, I'd uh, really appreciate it fully. But yeah, I'll, look, I liked it a lot. Um, do you like in the contest that George sends his mother to hospital because she catches him masturbating? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, now I'm going for the other iconic TV show of 1989. It's remarkable they both come out the same year, really. And I'm talking about The Simpsons. Now, how many episodes are we up to with The Simpsons? Because well, it's still going. They're celebrating the 30th anniversary Incredible. on Fox with a multi-day marathon. Incredible. Um, now, like a lot of people, I've long since tuned out of it. And here's what happened with me with The Simpsons. I, I did. I, I like. It took me a while to get onto it. I went through a stage where I was watching it all the time. And then for me, it got surpassed in my cartoon affections by South Park, which was just a bit wackier. And and that's what happened to Simpsons as a product, because actually it was Family Guy that took away its edge and popularity with adults. Yeah. So it became, again, more of a kid's cartoon. Yeah. Well, that's what I, what I was... risque. Yeah, what I was going to talk about was... I. I Distinctly remember when it started, Channel Ten picked it up, and it was they clearly didn't know what to do with it because it was pitched as a kids thing, and the one character they shoved down everyone's throats was Bart, yep. who in some ways is the least interesting 
character. Well, maybe. Oh, he has his moments. Yeah, he does. But he's not the most interesting character, is he? And he's not as loved or hilarious as Homer. Or no, no. Or Lisa. Or, a lot uh, of the side characters. Yeah. yeah. And um, it, it was pitched for kids because it was a cartoon. And I'm trying to think in, in terms of, um, you know, cartoons that are named as kids. That would be one of the first, wouldn't it? Well, that's what gave it this broad appeal. Yeah. Yeah, so it took people in Australia particularly a fair while to switch onto it, but... You, you know it didn't start... It had a life before 1989. Oh, it was a sketch on it Saturday sketch, Night Live no, or something. Tracy Ullman show. Oh, yeah, okay, yep. Where the family was comp- just this two minutes of dysfunctional mayhem. Yep, yep. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, so it it didn't just... Well, it's still going. It doesn't just do comedy, does it? It's it, there, There's sometimes very heart-rending stuff in it, touching moments, but it, it's Matt Groening. Well, famous lines like when Homer thinks he's dying after eating the poison fish. No, no, oh, sorry, when Bart's dying after being struck by Monty Burns's car, Homer goes into the hospital, he goes, they say that the worst thing that can happen to a father is to lose his son. Uh, personally, I can see an upside. <laughs> <laughs> It, it um, but you know things like when um, Ned Flanders' wife dies, and yeah. um, you know some real touching stuff in it. And uh, <laughs> she fell off a, she, <laughs> it wasn't that touching. She fell off the bleachers in a stand after Homer fired a t-shirt <laughs> from a t-shirt well, cannon. Well, what's the Seinfeld equivalent as George's bride to be dying after licking yeah. the envelopes? <laughs> Yum. But yeah, look, iconic. TV show, and even if you think it's sort of jumped long since Jump the Shark, uh, obviously very, very important in, in TV history. A famous, your favourite episode? Um, oh, probably the monorail, I think. I have two standouts. Yeah. Because the other thing that happened in the early years that was so rich in script and content that they ran two stories concurrently in the one episode... Yeah. They don't do that anymore. It's very mm. mono. It's very single dimensional. So, do you remember the episode where Marge is painting Monty Burns's portrait, being inspired by a letter from Ringo Starr? Don't think I do. She, her art was rekindled because she'd sent a painting to Ringo Starr that he'd never responded to, and that sort of um, suppressed her love of art. But it was only that he only just got back to writing back to her forty years, twenty years later. So she took up painting and painted Monty Burns's portrait, stark naked. <laughs> At the end of the episode, it's unveiled and everybody collapses. And he goes up to goes, Marge, I know what I like and I don't know what I don't like and I don't don't like this. In other words, he liked it. He goes, mm, thanks for not making fun of my private part. And she goes, I thought I did. But that's also the episode where Homer gets stuck in the... Can we go to Mount Splashmore? Can we? Can we? Please, please. And on the lighter side of the news tonight, <laughs> a man, got, he got stuck in the water slide at Mount Splashmore. <laughs> so it's the episode he goes on a diet and does it by using subliminal tapes, but they send him the improve your, um, improve your vocabulary rather than lose weight. <laughs> so he becomes this, this posh-speaking, those darned Mountie Banks with their... Audio chicanery. <laughs> it's all the one episode. All right, there you have it. Vinyl and video for this week, 1989, the year. Um, this is 
turning into a very long episode finally, or last one before Christmas. Yeah, a lot you can to, enjoy it over two weeks. Well, we're not here know, next week. A lot, a lot to wrap up. But well, uh, so, given we got another minute, my favourite line ever from The Simpsons. Okay. When Troy McClure, sadly, you see a lot of characters were lost when people died. So mm. Phil Hartman was murdered by his wife, and we lost Troy McClure, Lionel Hutz, and others. But he picks up the phone. He goes, "Hello, this is MacArthur Parker." Your agent, my agent. He goes, yes. And he goes, Troy, have you heard of the Planet of the Apes? And what's his response? The movie or the planet? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is it for vinyl and video. Uh, let's rant on footyology. The rant off. All right, no fiddling around, Finey. You're going to go first today. I'm counting you in three, two, one. Rant. Hate these, but going to do these. New Year's resolutions, because uh, part of my life needs some improving. Or does it? Resolution number one was going to be to lose some weight. I've steadily been putting on weight and, and catching glimpses of myself in the mirror, not liking what I'm seeing. So how do I address that? By removing mirrors. What I'm going to do is walk past less mirrors. As a great friend of mine, Terry Fitzgerald, once said, much to other people's jealousy and anger. I can eat whatever I want and not worry about putting on weight. And they'd say to him, how do you do that? He said, by not worrying about putting on weight. <laughs> Number two, I now live in a less than flat part of Melbourne, not used to uh, hilly climbs and getting to the shops with a llama and a Sherpa. <laughs> I'm now struggling a little bit and short of breath just getting to the mailbox. The obvious answer is to get fit, to get back on the bicycle, do some running, and get my aerobic fitness up. Or, I've noted, a lot of bicycles with motors on them, even scooters and skateboards. I think I'm going to join the aggravating motorised wheel set. I don't need to get fitter. I need to get batteried up. And finally, the one that I know Rowan is most concerned about as are other people, and that is my lack of respect and, um, well, disregard for the modern mores surrounding contacting each other, being contactable, and basically social interaction. I'm not good at answering SMSs or missed phone calls, and there's really only one thing for it, that those people that are upset by my behaviours drink a cup of concrete and toughen the F up, because quite frankly... If you call fine, then don't expect a reply anytime soon. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating, do it safely, and we'll be back. That's Rowan and myself and the boys from both Andrews Burgers and Nick's Bartels and Hardwick Build Co. to do it bigger and better next year. Why are you signing off the show? I haven't that's done mine. My... You can sign it. That's my and, thing. and I will be taking that last point up with you because that is just a complete and utter cop-out. <laughs> All right. Uh, my turn. Count me in. One, two, let it through. I'm pissed off with these rants, Finey. All bloody year I've had to concoct faux outrage about a whole series of things I actually don't really care that much about and has finally got the better of me. Yep, I've run out of anger. Well, that's not actually true. If you're stupid enough to follow me on Twitter, you'll know there's no end to my seething rage. 
But that's about really insignificant stuff, like, you know, our whole country being on fire while the Prime Minister's pissed off to Hawaii, or the fact our entire media seems to be populated by people who actually refuse to believe there's even a problem, or think the bigger issue than us all dying in a giant fireball is how it's going to play out in the polls. That's trivial stuff. On the really big issues, like who's going to be the big improver in AFL 2020, or which club's got the best junior development program, I've got nothing left to give. It's got so bad that when I actually do tweet about footy, I'm getting a procession of people telling me to stick to politics. I think part of the problem is how quiet the off-season seems to be now. Whatever happened to the good old days, finally, when every week we'd see another of those footballers behaving badly stories? You know, guys hijacking buses, getting wasted and ransacking dry cleaning shops, or just running amok with a pair of chopsticks. These days, they're also bloody well-behaved. They do their training, they go home, they lead normal lives and don't seem to get into trouble at all. It's so quiet out there in the football world right now, half the footy media don't know what to do with themselves. If we're not careful, soon some will even be reduced to writing about the game. Worst of all, finally, it's nearly Christmas. People start being nice to you, they give you presents, you catch up with family and friends, you eat great food, you relax... How the hell am I supposed to work up a spittle-flecked tirade of vitriol with only all that bonhomie for material? Look, I've tried. I turned on Sky News the other day for inspiration, but even they looked like they were going through the motions. Yeah, sure, Andrew Bolt was doing his flat-earth climate change as a big hoax routine. Chris Kenny had a half-hearted crack at the alleged war on Christmas. And that Paul Murray bloke was just shouting a lot of words, but never in actual coherent sentences. But come on, we all know those guys are just taking the piss. No one could be that stupid and actually mean it, could they? Though I did hear Chris Smith on Weekend Sunrise on Saturday suggesting Scott Morrison was one of the best leaders this country has had. Even ScoMo pissed himself laughing at that one, and so did those other people he was taking selfies with at Waikiki Beach. And look, if the PM's in holiday mode, how can I not be? So I'm rounded out, finally. All I've got left is to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and let's all hope we make it to 2020 without being burned to a crisp. Not that there's a problem or anything. I mean, how good is complete apathy? Your apathy is equal to most people's insane rants. <laughs> so it's good. The volume, it's, you've now reached a level where you're in, you're, you're in, to, toler, no, your lack of, I wouldn't say luck. Spit it out, man. Yeah, it's hard to say. Your your curmudgeonly view of the world, your standard re- default setting of, how are you, Rowan? Absolutely effed. That's good. It's now, it, you've now realised that that's your setting, so you're not ranting anymore. You feel that that wasn't a rant? No. Because for the rest of the world, it was. <laughs> I believe in complete emotional honesty. So if someone asks me how I'm going and I'm not going well, I'm not going to tell them otherwise. Yeah, but I'm saying it's your default setting. No, fair enough. All right, look, that is it. Bit uh, a bit of a marathon show today, but uh, like I said, we won't be here next week. And uh, very sincerely from both of us, uh, oh, let's thank our sponsors quickly again. You couldn't get better sponsors. The guys, Greg's at Andrew's Hamburgers, they're sweethearts. They've been very supportive. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you do so well, and that is feed Melburnians the best hamburger they've ever had. Thanks, guys. At 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrew's Hamburgers, a Melbourne institution, and... Yeah, dotted all around that area, South Melbourne, Albert Park, Port Melbourne, Middle Park. 
brilliant houses that have been built or renovated by Nick Spartels and Hardwick Build Co. Look, if you love your football, then just think Dyson Heppel, Scott Pendlebury, Mike Sheehan. Big names, beautiful houses, thanks to that magnificent team of builders. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the support. As we appreciate your support, um, as people will be aware, we've got a, a footyology thread on Big Footy, that popular fan forum. Um, so thanks everyone on there who chips in with um, criticism or praise or suggestions or whatever. Thanks everyone who listens. I can't say this strongly enough. We uh, we are doing this um, f- for you guys. Uh, we we love talking footy and talking other stuff, and we love that people actually have interest in our rambling. So. Uh, Thanks a heap, everyone who listens in. It's been fantastic. And we promise, and Rowan and I really are committed to this, in a world where the voices that cover the game of football, AFL that we love, seem to be more, you know, there are less voices and they all speak from one, with one ideal. We promise to continue to give independent analysis of football and of the people who run the game. Indeed, until someone slips us enough money. No, just kidding. Um, all right, thanks. I'd rather, I'd rather die poor and true to my ideals than wealthy and uh, slave to the man. All right. Said me never. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, everyone. Uh, have a great Christmas. Uh, stay safe out there. We'll see you back in a couple of weeks. So Monday, January the 6th, we shall return with more summer edition footyology. And to take you out from our final edition of 2019, we went back to 1989 today, and this is uh, the hit single from XTC's Oranges and Lemons, one of my favourite pop songs. It is sublime. I speak of the Mayor of Simpleton. See you in the new year, everyone. <laughs>